Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, everybody. What is marketing? It's anything you do to interact with the market, what you make, how much you charge, and who works for you. Marketing is all that and then some. My guest today is none other than Seth Godin, the legend, the best-selling author, speaker, and direct marketing hall of fame and marketing hall of fame inductee. He will offer his insights on what marketing tactics will put you over the top. He's gonna to provide us with a blueprint to elevate marketing efforts to the next level. He'll also tell us which questions you need to ask to create positive change and discuss his latest book, The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. Seth, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazel. It's a pleasure. It's good to see you again, man. You know, Seth, one of the things knowing you over the last decade that always strikes me as just something solid is your own position of who you are and where you come from. But I, you know, I recently called you about an idea and you said, hey, if, it, if, if I could do it this way, it works for me. You know, if it doesn't, not interested. When did you kind of have that sense of this is me and I don't give a, uh, for lack of a better word, give a shit what others think. This is where I'm at. I'm, co I'm cool with who I am. When did you, when did you develop that? I care way too much about what other people think. And if I offended you, I apologize. I'm going to no. worry about it all night. Uh, here's what I did, though. I realized two important things about 20 years ago. One, if your motto is you can pick anyone and I'm anyone, you're in big trouble. Because the number of anyone's out there keeps going up and they are easier to find. Too often we are pushed by outside forces to be anyone that our mother-in-law or our friends or people who care about us push us to be normal, to be in the middle, to be replaceable. And then the second thing, which goes with the first thing, can't be specific and be for everyone at the same time. Mm. You gotta figure out who you are for. I am here to solve this problem. If you have something else, I will eagerly send you to other people who need what you have. But I'm here for this, this is what I do. And, you know, an easy way to think about it is the general practitioner who says, if you've got an ache or a pain, I can help you versus Dr. Leach, who was the doctor for the U.S. ski team who did shoulder surgery every single Wednesday, three shoulders a Wednesday. Who do you want to operate on your shoulder? Now, if you don't have a shoulder problem, he's not going to try to persuade you you need shoulder surgery. He's only here for people who have a shoulder problem. And so I don't like uh, disappointing people, but I find that the best way to be a useful contribution is to be specific about who I'm for. That's a great way to say it. We've seen a lot of disruption and transformation in the last number of months, certainly since March. Do you think marketers have learned to deal with the unexpected and are, are they ready for the next crisis? Because where we have one, we got another one coming somewhere, uh, somewhere else and there's more coming. So you think they're ready for this? Have they learned? Well, I think we got to get our terms right. Marketers are not advertisers. And the people who call themselves the vice president of marketing are usually charged by the CEO with being advertisers. Take average stuff for average people, add money, hype it, spin it, promote it, get some social media followers, repeat. That's not what marketing is. That's just what marketing used to be. 
Marketing is what we make, how we make it, who we make it with, how diverse our organization is, what the side effects are. All of those things are marketing choices. So by my definition, marketers are always ready with a resilient approach because they understand that the future is going to be upside down. The old kind of marketers have been freaking out for 15 years because they just want to buy TV ads and they're not for sale anymore. And, you know, you've learned this firsthand in the podcasting world. The best podcast sponsors aren't the ones who are counting clicks. They're the ones who figured out how to reach the people they want to reach with a message they need to hear. Yeah, listen to that advertiser. That's a good, good message because I deal with you every single day. And you're always saying, well, I want to use this code. No C-suite executive uses a code. He walks back into his assistant and says, buy me this. He doesn't hand him a code. Okay, let's just get that off. Hey, Seth, I've always said that the definition of marketing is the inception of the idea all the way through customer satisfaction. Would you agree with that? Yes. And I'd add one step after that, which is what the satisfied customer tells their boss or their friends. Ooh, I love that. I love that. I see you're always adding. You're always doing a little value add. I, you always make me think a little bit. You know, I always, and I always enjoy being on the stage with you or after you or before you when we've always been there. Let me ask you, what are the three steps to take your marketing efforts to the next level? So if you're, you're talking to these CEOs that are on here, these CMOs that are on here, CIOs, everybody that we've got listening right now and being a part of this, what are the three steps would you tell them that this is what you got to do? So the first step I've been talking about for a really long time. You don't show up in the chat room of a Zoom call and post the link over and over again, hoping that someone will accidentally click on it and buy something from you. <laughs> That's spam, right? That what we begin with is understanding that attention and trust are precious and you don't burn attention. You don't burn trust to get attention. That's a waste. You have to treasure the fact that someone has a moment to engage with you And if it's not for them in this moment, it's not for them. You earn permission. The second one is getting your arms around the idea that you are doing something chronic and persistent over time, that marketing is not about tactics or emergencies or making this quarter's numbers. Marketing is what journey are we on? And the third thing is that it's all a story. Uh, Money is a story. The products we make are a story. What is the story we are telling? What does the lived experience of our contribution to the world look like and feel like? And would they miss us if we were gone? Because if they're not going to miss you, if you're gone, then please don't show up. Yeah. You should think about that too. If you work for the business, if you're, I was just thinking about that, that I've had some people work in the business and I just saw one of the names and that person's no longer with us. And I went like, do I miss that person? No. Okay. So we, that, that tells you whether they're valuable. Hey, talk to me about your book. You know, it came out earlier this month. You talk about there being a pattern to who succeeds and who doesn't. I think we see this all the time. What does that pattern look like? So first, what does it mean to be a creative? It doesn't mean that you write operas or musicals or even write ads. Creative work is new work done by a human that might make something better. And if you're not doing creative work, you're not in the C-suite. Because the only work of the C-suite is to solve an interesting problem for the first time. Everything else you should be outsourcing to people who are following instructions. So this creative work, what do CEOs and playwrights and filmmakers and musicians have in common? Well, what they have in common is they don't wait for the muse to show up and whisper the answer to them. They uh, have a practice. They do it on the regular. 
They are able to put things into the world and when they don't work, they learn from it and they do it again. And mostly they aren't hooked on manipulating the outcome. They are instead focused on the process because if you get the process right, you are on your way to the best possible path to the outcome. C-Suite Radio. You know, a lot of people talk about failing fast. And I say, forget that. You're always going to fail, especially as part of this process. The real objective is to win fast, to get to where you want to go. Do you agree with that? Well, what is winning, right? So Simon Sinek's uh, recasting of Infinite Game says there's two kinds of games, right? The games where there's a, a scorekeeper and a time limit and a winner and a loser, like soccer. And then there are infinite games. If you go out to play catch with your three-year-old grandson, uh, you're not trying to win at catch, that the purpose of catch is not to win, it's to be able to keep playing catch. And so we have to figure out what game are we playing when we bring our ideas to the world, when we hire someone, when we do a partnership, when we seek to build our institution. And for me, I'm way more interested in playing an infinite game than winning a finite game. Because the problem with winning a finite game is then you don't get to play anymore. And in a game, in a world where trust and connection are so important, if we can keep weaving those together, we get to keep playing. How many books have you written now? Well, so there are 20 bestsellers in a row. That's a good streak. That's but a good streak. Before that, I was a book packager who invented books and I did 142 books. Wow. Um, some of those were bestsellers, but they didn't, I didn't have my name on them as the author all the time. So I drew a line in the sand. So I say 20 when people ask me. So you kind of know the game. So and one of the most daunting things is for a lot of people, I, I don't have this issue as much, but well, I just start writing, right? And when you're trying to write something, it's staring at a blank page. How do you overcome that? Or do you, does it just come naturally for you doing this? Well, my, my high school year, in my high school yearbook, my English teacher wrote, you are the bane of my existence and you will never amount to anything. Are you and, kidding me? And I hope uh, that you, I hope, is it, was it he or she? It was a she. I hope you send her a copy of every book, every single Christmas or birthday that you do. I mean, I dedicate, I dedicated a book to her. A good. And I ran, I ran into her about a year ago. Um, because of her advice, I didn't, I only took one English course in college. Uh, I am not a preordained writer. That's not what this is about. I decided to write like I talk, which yeah. forced me to learn to talk better. And the act of writing a book is either a very painful, selfish process or a survivable, generous one. And if you can approach this as I'm writing out instructions for somebody who really needs them, it's a lot easier than I'm going to be judged by what I just said. And I was friends with Isaac Asimov. I worked with him on a project. You can see it uh, right over my shoulder there. Um, Isaac published 400 books in his lifetime. And I said, Isaac, how did you do that? Because it was hard in those days to publish a book. And he said, every morning I sit in front of this typewriter and I type for six hours. And it doesn't have to be good. I just have to type. And that's the solution to writer's block. Don't show me your good writing. Show me your bad writing. If you have enough bad writing, you don't have writer's block. Do you, do you type yours? I, I dictate. I, I have, a, I have a, a person who works with me, Jim Eber, has been absolutely unbelievable. He, he's so much, takes on, helps me with my persona, meaning 
he really gets into my head. He's unbelievable. He knows me better than I know myself, but I just talk, you know, I just start talking and speaking and then he captures that. Do you do that or are you actually typing it out? Yeah, I could never do that. I, I have yeah. trouble dictating to Google dictate that turns it by computer into type. I'm too self-conscious because when I'm saying it, I feel like it's sort of dumb and I could never say it to a human. I will tell you that the best selling American author until James Patterson came along made books exactly the way you do. And Earl, Earl Stanley Gardner, the guy who invented Perry Mason, Oh. dictated a Perry Mason book every 22 days and never changed a word. Wow. Word for word, whatever he said was the book. Wow. That, that's, pretty, that's pretty phenomenal. I, uh, trust me, mine doesn't come out that way. We have to move this over here and yeah. this over here and this over here and this over here. But I, I just keep going and yes. like that creative side of it where you would type it out. So you've always said that consistency is far more important than authenticity. I, I think that's consistently bad. I mean, why? What? Why? Why should okay, we strive so to be let's, authentic? Let's talk about authenticity, and I think the people on this call particularly understand what it means to do something that matters and to succeed. Authenticity is the flavor of the day. That that's what Instagram and all the others want you to do. Tell us how you're really feeling. Yeah. If you go in for surgery, you don't want her to if she's having a bad day, tell you how she's really feeling and do a lousy job. You want the best version of that surgeon. Right. And if you go to see someone performing in concert back when we could go to concerts, you don't want that musician to be authentic. You want the best version of that musician. That's what you paid for. If in almost every interaction we have, except for maybe celebrity voyeur moments, we want consistent promises kept. Be the best version of yourself on the regular. That's why it's work. That's why you can charge for it. If you want to be authentic, make that your hobby. But that's not professional. Hmm. That's in so so with that, how would you differentiate between a skill and a talent? Right. So if you want to insult somebody who's done the work, call them talented. Because <sighs> talented means you were born with it. It just happened. No. You were born naked, unable to read or write, and afraid. And over time, you earned skills. And there are still some talents left. I will never be able to dunk a basketball because I don't have the talent of being that tall. But very few things that you and I or anybody on this call do are things we were born with. They are skills we earned. And that's good because it means it's under our control. Because it means, you know, leaving aside the indoctrination the unfair boundaries of privilege and all the rest of it. Once we are where we are, we can learn skills. And that's thrilling to me because it means you can get better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Seth, one of the things now is there's this huge shift on, you know, certainly with content, it's always been there, but people are starting to realize you got to be a content machine. You got to be a brand that does content. You, you got to be a brand of you, sell you, sell the company, sell the company, sell you. And quite frankly, to be real blunt, you and I have done a pretty good job of making a living around the brands of us, right? What, what advice do you have for either a thought leader, an author, speaker, you know, coach, trainer, or a, a, a leader of, a, of a, what I would say, and I don't mean to say it like this, a real business, right? Mm -hmm. The difference. What would you give advice to either one of those about doing the brand of them? So let's be really clear about what a brand is because it's not a logo. Right. I agree. These, 
these glasses are my logo. And um, Hyatt Hotels has a logo, but Nike has a brand. And the way we know Nike has a brand is if they opened a hotel, you and I both know what it would be like because they stand for something. So what it means to have a brand is that you're making a promise and we can make a guess as to what you're going to be like the next time you show up. And so that's where the consistency comes in. And that's where the urgency to be specific, idiosyncratic, and remarkable show up. Because if you're, again, like I said, if your motto is you can pick anyone and wear anyone, you don't have a brand. You're just the cheapest or the most convenient. So whatever I did for a living, whatever kind of company I want to build, I don't need to put a human in front of it and be authentic. I need to put a clear label on it that stands for something. What don't you do? What do you do when no one's looking? What would I expect you would charge for this? Well, given what I know about you, I would expect that. And being consistent in that intentional action helps us define whether or not we have a brand. This social media thing is more about getting attention on the cheap. And I don't think that's the project. I think the project is for the people who already trust you, what will they tell their friends? The social media side of it's the OPM, other people's money. Do you, do you ever have a tough time, you know, around your brand about being what you are or represent do you? I mean, I hear people all the time say, I'm working on my brand. I'm going, seriously? And what they're talking about is their logo, their look, their feel, the attributes of the brand. But as you said, a brand is a promise delivered. You know, it's not all those things. Do you ever do you ever get in your head and start thinking about, geez, I, I need to work on my brand today? Do you do that? Well, like sometimes I've written 7,500 blog posts in a row and someone will send me a blog post from 3,000 posts ago. I have no recollection of writing it. But <laughs> yeah. when I read it, it sounds like me. Yeah. And I am cognizant every single day of the need to sound like me. Yeah. That I cannot and will not be authentic with, quote, my public, because it's not my family. It's my public. I am putting on a performance in a consistent way, the same way that Ford Motor Company is, because that's the promise that we make. And if there's something, uh, a project I want to do, a thing I want to launch that isn't aligned with what I rhyme with, then I either have to do it quietly on my own, or I have to not do it. Because we are each stewards of this trust and you don't get to just do something else simply because you feel like it right this minute. But that can change too, right, Seth? I mean, oh, yeah. that, that blog of three, 3,000, you know, days ago or whenever that would have been, you know, sometimes people will come back to me and say, but you said this. Yeah, I oh, said yeah. it. I said oh, it back wrong then. All the time. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. But yeah. part of my brand is to be wrong yeah. all the time. You and I both know people in the public eye who are never wrong, even though yeah. they're wrong all the time. Because yeah. part of their brand is to never change their mind. Exactly. Exactly. Well, speaking of change of minds, I want to hear everybody else's mind. Seth, I want to thank you so much for being on here with me and being my friend and being a confidant over the years. It, I just enjoy it. And I enjoy it a lot. And we, we could be more opposite on size. We could be more opposite in so many other ways, but we're so aligned in so many ways. And that I've always appreciated about you. Uh, whenever we run into each other, been on the stage together, it's always been a pleasure. And so I want to thank you for that. Well, right back at you. And I'm going to hang out and do questions if that's what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to turn it over to Greg. I'm going to step back and let uh, let the team take forward and then bring in all these great questions that we got from our C-suite executives. What an engaging group. 
C-Suite Radio. It's a phenomenal conversation and everybody's just dying to get into it. So uh, Greg Williams, one of our faculty leaders, Seth, and he has a great question. He says, you know, change is ever occurring. And when you think about what we've just experienced, what changes might we expect to occur in marketing in a post-COVID world? Well, I think the biggest shift is that uh, people who have money to spend aren't going to be spending as much time as they were filling their self-storage units with crap. And I think that marketers are going to be spending less time uh, doing the marketing as a meta exercise. That a lot of people who looked death in the eye are going to say, bring me some meaning, please. And even if it's things that aren't meaningful, we're going to be looking for what really matters to me and to be in this circle. Um, I also think that the marketers who succeeded because of TV are all going away bit by bit, a generational shift is happening and that changes what we make and how we make it. Greg, Bob, over to you, there's so many questions. So Seth, Bob Pizzini has a case study for you, if you don't mind. So we're gonna to go to business school. He owns a skydiving facility, which generally the target market is 11 to 14 year old boys who don't drive and who don't have their own money. So how do you market to them when it's kind of a bank shot? I'm just trying to visualize which parent is throwing their 12 year old out of an airplane, but leaving that part aside, um, yeah, most of the marketing that we do is actually a bank shot. If it's not selling to a business person, what will I tell my boss? It's selling to a parent, what will I tell my kid? Or selling to a person, what will I tell my neighbor? This is all built in to what happens in community. And so I think, first of all, whatever business you're in, that's a choice. And if we're now entering a world where being in that business is hard, you don't have to be in that business anymore if you don't want to. But let's presume for a minute that we're sticking with this. The question is, what does the parent tell themselves, their friends, their neighbors, and their kid? So for example, fencing is really big in the county where I live. Why? Because parents tell themselves it'll help their kid get into Harvard. Because there are lots of sports that are closer to your house, but this one feels like the kind of sport people like you would do. So where is the connection among the 11 to 14 year olds who are doing it? Because it's too expensive to get a kid to do it once. You got to figure out where the whales are. How do I get a kid to do it 20 times? Well, that's going to happen because I'm part of a team. It's going to happen because I'm part of a league. It, and parents in the U.S. are suckers for that, right? They'll spend any amount of money and time to, to do it for the team and to create that site. So there's all these ways for you to model what would be of service to a parent who's looking for something that gives them and their kid meaning, as opposed to how do I keep my airplanes filled with teenagers? It's indoor skydiving. I didn't want to interrupt oh. you. And I think they actually, they have one up, up near yes. you. They have one right near my house. And there's a big warning when you get there that says you can't do it if you have bad shoulders. And I've had surgery on both shoulders. I'll do it in a minute because I really want to do it. But yeah, okay. So no one's jumping out of an airplane. That makes me feel better. But it was a fantastic answer. Thank you so much for answering the case study. Back to you, Trish. 
Thank you, Greg. So uh, Bob owns the iFly Zone in Virginia Beach, and I have done it, Seth. It's incredible. Um, it, it is so much fun. Um, so another one of our hero leaders, uh, Laura Menef, she says, what brings you the greatest joy? What makes you smile? What gives you goosebumps? Professionally, it's the people who are on this call. It's hearing from people who didn't see something and then they see it and do something that made things better in a way they didn't expect. That is the only reason I show up and do this work. Um, that, you know, I built this thing called Akimbo that's now an independent B Corp, not owned or run by me, but we have trained more than 20,000 people through these intensive workshops. And what's fascinating is how much leverage people don't realize they have who have been brainwashed into holding back, but when they are surrounded by others who are on this journey, it's easier to go on the journey and watching the side effects of that. People doing things I couldn't imagine in countries I've never visited, that gives me joy. Incredible. And right. Nellie Dreesen asks, what are some of the trendy words one should recognize as potential red flags? So I guess if she's saying, if you were gonna call out a bullshit artist, what, what, what triggers it for you? Um, I, social media presence really doesn't uh, resonate with me. I think that anytime you're on a platform that you're not paying for, you need to remember that you're not the customer, you're the product and you are being manipulated. Like if I wanted to give uh, Facebook a slogan that's honest in one sentence, it's people are talking about you behind your back. You want to see what they're saying? And by reminding people of that over and over and over again, they put us into a state of insecurity which gets us to use it more because we're the product and marketers are as guilty as anyone at falling for that trap because it's hard to go upstream in your company, sit down with the designers, sit down with the HR people and say, we're going to change what we make. It's easier to, to be in the spin business and it's easier to say, let's just change the logo, but that's not your job. You have enough leverage to actually change what you make. Um, Bob McGlanny, who is again, one of our faculty leaders and uh, Rebecca Blue, who owns Jessup Cellars. We have a wine tasting tomorrow night, Seth. You need to come and join us for some of those. They're fantastic. Um, both of them had a very similar question. And, and I think you've touched on it in a really interesting way. So I'm excited to see how you answer this. It's really as a marketer with what, where we are right now, how do you break through the noise? How do you really break through the noise and, and position your brand in the best light today? please don't break through the noise. Breaking through the noise just makes more noise. The tactical approach that many marketers take is not only not working, it's making the problem worse. The internet is not a mass medium. Television is the last mass medium there will ever be. It's a micro medium. There is no homepage of the internet. You can't reach everybody on the internet. It was so easy to reach 30 million people in 1985. You can't reach 30 million people today. Stop trying. But the internet is the greatest micro medium of all time. There is zero noise when you are talking to people who actually want to hear from you. Zero, because they are eagerly paying attention. So when you have a spam bot, call my house during dinner just because you have my phone number, that you're not marketing, you're spamming, you're stealing, you're taking, and you're not breaking through the clutter, you're making it worse. On the other hand, if 
a trusted family friend calls me on my cell phone, there's no noise at all because it's someone I want to hear from. So the work is to become important to just enough people. And for most people on this call, I'm guessing it's 3,000. Three, like my book, The Practice, is a number one Wall Street Journal bestseller. And yet fewer than 0.1% of the people in America have read it. That's a rounding error, zero. If you round it off, have read it. And it's still number one because you don't need everyone. You just need someone. Now you've mentioned Facebook before. Larry Keating has a question. He wants to know your view of LinkedIn as a marketing platform. And it seems to me like we can go out to lots of different places, but a lot of those different places all just keep leading back to in to Facebook and LinkedIn. So what's your view of LinkedIn? So if you asked me in 1964, if I thought the telephone was a good marketing platform, I would say, well, if you have a pizza place and people are calling you on the telephone to order pizza, you need a phone, but the phone isn't a marketing platform. Neither is LinkedIn. Not if you're using it to interrupt people. It is simply a way for people who have already decided to talk about you or find you that they can do so. We need to not think that these companies are easy places to turn money into attention because they're not. That the way we succeed is by getting the 100 people who care about us to bring us 10 people each. Why would they do that, right? Like think of the first person with a fax machine. What did they do with it? You can't send a fax to yourself. You get a busy signal. You had to tell other people to go get a fax machine. That's how it spread because the people who liked it needed other people to like it too. So if as part of the C-suite thing, you decide that your life would be better if your colleagues were also part of this, you will tell them, not because you like Jeffrey, but because you like yourself, because there's something in it for you to bring the others along. And LinkedIn is one of the places the others congregate, but it's not an ad platform like NBC is an ad platform. Yes, that's how they make money. But in fact, more than half of LinkedIn's revenue comes from headhunters because what they're really doing is offering people who are recruiting a database. And it's hard for me to describe to you a business that has grown to scale simply by spending money on LinkedIn. I just don't see it. So I shouldn't ask you about TikTok next per Evan Hackle and all the other ones out there? They're all the same. Every one of these platforms, my answer is the same. They're the telephone. Figure out what people should talk about on the phone. Don't figure out how to win the telephone. Given your experience, your extensive experience in publishing, uh, Stephen Shapiro, again, one of our faculty leaders in, uh, in C-suite, obviously an innovation leader globally, uh, he's asking, what is the future of publishing from your perspective, Seth? And, and what's the role of books in today's world of content abundance and all of those social platforms we were just talking to? I, I'll answer sort of in a reverse order. First of all, everyone on this call should write a book, put it on the Kindle for free, just write it for yourself, just to get your thoughts straight. Number two, consider writing a book because it is an, a sign, a signal of expertise to be able to say, I have enough to say that I could write a book about it. Now, publishing is not the same as printing. Printing a book today is trivially easy and free. Just write something and put it on the Kindle. That's not publishing. Publishing involves taking a financial risk to bring a new idea to people who want to hear it. Book publishers are in trouble. And they're in trouble because 
their customer is the bookstore. That's why if you pick up any book in your, on your bookshelf, you will not find the phone number of the publisher because they don't want you to call them. But they know every bookstore in the country because that's their customer. And that was fine until the bookstores all went away. And so we have this challenge, which is there are still plenty of people who are still reading plenty of books. But if you don't have a permission relationship with the reader, it's hard. So the secret of my 20 bestsellers in a row is simple because I have a bunch of people who I can email with my blog and say, hi, I have a new book. That's my advantage. You've earned this asset. And so going forward, publishing as a profitable industry is going to shift to small circles of communities of people where permission exists, where you can bring them a new idea. Brian Roth uh, wants to know, whether or not it takes effort or work for you to sound like you, or does it come naturally because you've done it for so long? You've done 20 books. I mean, is it just easy for you to be yourself now? Um, I, I don't recommend picking a, a brand that doesn't fit, just like I don't recommend buying a pair of shoes that don't fit, but don't confuse your shoes with your bare feet. So I have a brand that fits. And if I can look at the right interface on my screen, it reminds me how to write like me. But I've written every single word of the 4 million words. Um, I have no staff. There is zero. This is it. This is my entire team in this room with me right now. That's on purpose because that's part of my brand. You don't have to have that be your brand. Steve Jobs didn't invent, design, or program the Mac. That wasn't the deal, right? And so pick a brand that fits and then be alert enough to edit yourself before you ship something that doesn't fit. This, this next question with Mike Skripnik, again, one of our faculty leaders, he, he's specifically calling out the All Marketers Tell Stories book, Seth. And he says, you know, you, do, you delve into the stories we tell ourselves. He wants to know what the most important story is that you've told yourself that drives your actions. There's more than one, but the one I'll highlight is possibility. Uh, Stephen... Uh, Steve, Ben and Roz Zander wrote a book called The Art of Possibility. If you haven't read it, it will change your life. If you can get the audio book, please do. The Art of Possibility, of realizing that the world is the way the world is, and there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of suffering, you might not be treated fairly. You might be treated way better than you deserve. Whatever, it happened. Now what can you do? How can you turn that into an opportunity for the next thing. And Roz has a great riff in the book, which is the difference between but and and. If you have a long planned uh, event with your family and it's pouring rain when you get there, you can say, oh, we're on this trip, but it's raining. And now possibility disappears. Or you can say, we're on this trip and it's raining. So what are we gonna do now? Oh, what a great chance to have that conversation we have been putting off. What a great chance to learn to cook. What a great chance to play that board game. That opportunity, that possibility, we are all so privileged, all of us, each of us so lucky. And if you're healthy, I hope you stay that way. Um, don't waste it. Don't waste it watching cat videos or worrying about things you can't control. Just focusing on possibility instead. Okay, we have Merit Khan and Stephen Amiel want to know about selling. I know we've been talking a lot about marketing, 
We want to talk about selling. So Stephen and Merritt both kind of want to know, do you think that the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of virtual selling? And what impact do you think it will have on events once COVID has been mitigated? Oh, well, it's a simple question with a one sentence answer. Oh, let me try. Okay. <laughs> so selling. Uh, my friend, teacher, the late Zig Ziglar, certainly wrote the book on selling. Uh, Anthony Iannarino is his sort of heir when it comes to thinking clearly about this. If you do B2B selling, let's get real or let's not play, plus spin selling will change your life. Um, selling is the art of bringing emotional energy to help other people overcome natural resistance to saying yes. All of us feel resistance to saying yes, because it's risky to say yes. It might not work. People might make fun of you. You might do the wrong thing. You might pay too much. What will I tell my boss? For all of those reasons, we don't simply buy stuff. Sometimes things are sold to us. And that emotional energy is easy to misuse. You can manipulate people. You can rip them off. You can hustle them. No one wants to be hustled. So ethical selling involves earning enrollment and permission to bring your emotional energy to the table to help people get to where they were going all along. And whether it's on a Zoom call or in person shouldn't make any difference whatsoever. What matters is, does this person even wanna be here? Do they want to sit on the same side of the table as you to solve their problem? And uh, I think that's human nature. And if you're selling something that makes people's lives better, if you would sell it, even if you didn't get a commission, then I think it's fine to sell it. I think it's important and urgent that you do so. And after the vaccine, and I'm like as high on the list as anyone will let me be, because science is real and science works. After the vaccine, people are gonna rush to some of the things that we miss, things like restaurants. I'm not sure people are gonna rush to other things that we don't miss so much. And back to that idea of seeking meaning. And so if you're not selling something, that offers people meaning, you might want to think about selling something else. Fantastic. I have a great question for you. This is so in keeping with the culture of the C-Suite Network community and the Hero Club, which Brian Searcy is a part of. And he says, how important or is it important to have a give? What does that mean? Great question. So with what we talk about in our principles in just about every single meeting, and I'm, I'll be going through it again tonight, uh, I always do, it is relevancy, reach, and reciprocity. And so how do we create relevancy for each other? How do we um, increase each other's reach through each other's communities? And how do we uh, make sure that we have always a give with any ask that we share? And so any introduction we do into the C-suite network, any testimonial that's shared, anything, there is always a give. And so Brian is asking you what, what that means and what that might look like from a marketing perspective. Got it. So uh, Caldini in his great book, Persuasion, talks about how reciprocity is one of the powerful engines of human interaction. Unfortunately, it is usually manipulated by hustlers who do a thing to get a thing. And um, it is easy to misunderstand some of the stuff that people like Gary Vee have written about as 
do a thing to get a thing. And even my friend Zig used to say, you can get everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. And I think we should just shorten it to maybe you can help other people get what they want. The end. Maybe we're not giving so we can get. Maybe we just are lucky enough to have a trajectory that permits us to give. So, you know, if a million people read my blog and a thousand of them buy something, I didn't write the blog so a thousand of them would buy something. I wrote the blog because I had a chance to help a million people, period. And it turns out that we live in a world where if you give enough often, you do fine. But even if you don't, it's still worth the journey because the satisfaction of making the culture better is in and of itself sufficient. The meaning and purpose. I, I, I love it. There's, I think there might be a new book in there, Seth. I don't know. <laughs> you should write that one. Cause I'm, I, tired. I, I know, I'm already on it. I'm on it. <laughs> Greg. Uh, okay. Um, I think we just have a few uh, questions uh, going forward and I want to bring together two. Uh, Lisa Patrick and Michael Weiland want to know about how curiosity plays a role in your success. Maybe you have a story about uh, where you were curious about something and it turned into a learning moment for you. Well, I will tell you the secret of 7,500 blog posts and 20 books. It's a simple secret and I'm happy to give it away. If I can't figure out how something in the world works, it's very hard for me to go to sleep. I know that electricity is not a magic trick. I can tell you how it works. I know that my refrigerator does not have elves in it who keep the milk cold. I can tell you how it works. I don't have any satisfaction in seeing something in the world. Some business succeed, someone get elected, Eastman Kodak fail, whatever it is. If I can't come up with a thesis, a hypothesis, a theory about why that happened, and my best blog posts are simply my explanation of something I saw in the world and how I think it might work. And then if I can refine it, that's even better. So some people call that curiosity. And for me, it's part of my practice. Do not accept anything as a given without understanding how it fits into the system of our world. Tony Leonard says, you know, you've mentioned about learning to talk better. And he's really wondering how it is that you've upscaled in that arena for you. And, and what, what did you go through to, to be able to show up in this little screen as authentically um, and as admirably as you do? So the way they teach TED speakers now is a problem for me because basically they want you to memorize something and make that your TED talk. In the old days before we were online, that wasn't the deal. The challenge of putting your sentences together in a way that you could write down, it's still not a book, but at least it's not filled with recursive loops and loops, takes practice. And that's why I think everyone should have a podcast. You don't have to have a podcast with ads, but you could. You don't have to have a podcast with listeners, but you could. But turning on the microphone every day or every week and talking for 20 minutes and being able to say, I made this is really useful because writing is something we got taught to be afraid of when we were in school. 
But talking is something we do and we just assume people will figure it out. But if you look at the transcript of the way most people speak, you will be stunned at how little they actually communicated because they haven't practiced it. And now, now that every single person has a, a digital tape recorder in their pocket, start recording yourself. Start recording yourself when you're making a sales call. Start recording yourself when you're talking to your seven-year-old and then listen back and say, if I said it again, could I say it better? And when Jeff and I were talking about Earl Stanley Gardner dictating his books, I could never do that. But the idea that you could say three sentences in a row and have them mean what you mean them to mean, you can practice that. That's fantastic. How long have you been doing your podcast, Seth? We just hit season eight. So it's 155 or so. Mm -hmm. And my podcast is unusual. I have no guests. I've never had a guest. And I try in a 20 minute period of time to explain something this week's about queuing theory mm -hmm. that I was curious about. And sometimes there's a really cool punchline and sometimes there's not. I don't know until I get to the end. I do it in one take and I think about it for five days. And then I go into the shower back there filled with foam padding and I record it. That's fantastic. Okay. Greg? Nancy May wants to know what happens if you fall off your brand and make mistakes. So how do you notice that you're off brand? How do you recover? And what do you say to customers? Yeah, this happened to me uh, last week. Um, it, it hurt. Uh, I was tired and I was talking too fast. I apologized and I looked for what signals were in front of me so that if I saw them again, I could stop before. But I think what we have created in our culture with very few exceptions are brands where apologies are accepted, but where they are too rarely offered. And part of the problem is we're confused about the word sorry. If you say to somebody, I'm sorry your cat died, that doesn't mean you killed their cat. It just means you're sorry for their pain. And too often organizations are afraid to say they're sorry because they think that means they're saying they did it on purpose, that they killed the cat. You didn't kill the cat, but you can still be sorry. Does that limit your growth though? Is if all of a sudden you write 20 books and you're on brand and then you say, you know something, I want to write about something different. And, and, and all your audience says, wait a second, he's, he's off brand. And then you run and you apologize. I mean, you, you often see it with musical acts. They say, you know something? I've been doing heavy metal all my life. Now I want to put out a country record. And they feel like they have to get back and, and do another heavy metal record because they might lose their audience. They well, that's not, that's not the kind of apologizing I was talking about. Sorry if I misunderstood the question. Um, I think that when Pat Boone makes a heavy metal record, which he did, he doesn't have to apologize for that. And he didn't. Because you are saying to the listener, this is what this is. I didn't trick you, it's what it is. And they go back to the other thing because fame is a drug and money is a drug. And they realize they can't make any money making heavy metal records. So they go back to making Pat Boone records because that's what the brand wants. That's why Hyatt doesn't make sneakers. They're greedy as anybody, but they know that if they made sneakers, no one would buy them. So, 
One last question for me, um, and this is Cleo Franklin's question. And I think it's, it's really great as we think to where we are and how we're going to get to where we wanna go and uh, deliver on our mission. So what are your thoughts on the value of scenario planning and contingency planning? And do you see this discipline of modeling for uncertainty growing within the marketing and, and, and business functions? This is a great question, Cleo, thank you. Um, Shell Oil was one of the pioneers of contingency planning. Big companies are brittle. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.